0: Our Father, our hearts do sing, hallelujah. We praise you, we love you, we're so thankful that you have opened our eyes to see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ, we who were blind, now seen, we who were deaf, now hearing. And yet, with all of these glories, we confess our sin, and we know that the corruption that we were born into this world with still remains in us, and so we fight and we struggle, but we do that not on our own. We who have taken your yoke upon us know that you are gentle and humble in heart, and in our sin, we always find you a forgiving Savior. In our struggles to walk in righteousness, we find you gentle and leading, even though at times when we need, you do discipline us as is good for our souls, and we thank you for that as well. But we know that you use your word as that That revelation of truth and of your character and of your glory, and it is what you use to sanctify us as we bring our hearts before you. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth, you said, and we know that truth is not merely something that is outside of us, external, but it sanctifies us as truth is internal, as it influences our thoughts and our affections as we reason and live in light of it, as it does its work in us. And we pray that this morning, again, as we prepare for your table, that it would have that power by the working and the moving of your spirit in your people in us this morning. And to that end, we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Open up your Bibles, if you will, to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we... Ended last week on verse 15. We're going to pick it up again this morning at verse 16 and go walk through the end of the chapter. So Ecclesiastes 3, verses 16 through 22. And we are moving through Ecclesiastes, uh, trying to keep a steady pace here, but recognizing that at some of these points we need to take some sections uh, on their own, some smaller sections. And here in Ecclesiastes, as we looked last week, we find ourselves with Solomon moving on and continuing his theme of what it is to live in this world, to try to find meaning in this world without God, the futility of it, but to recognize God's mercies in the midst of that futility, and to recognize that in the midst of the hopelessness that we find by looking only at what we can see, touch, feel, and taste here in this world... That there is yet the mercies of God, the mercies of God, even in this fallen creation. And that, that really is one thing that Solomon makes us have to face, is that the world we live in is we live in a world under the curse of sin. We live in a world that bears the futility and the vanity that sin brought by its corruption and by death and everything else that attends the fall of man. But he doesn't leave us merely in the misery of it, although he makes us face that misery head on and he makes us face and think about the reality of it, but he doesn't leave us there. Again, he reminds us in the midst of it, there are the tokens of God's glory and ultimately he's pointing us past this world to the hope that we should find in God, hope that we should find in God. And that actually then is the title of this message uh, or this section here. It is, a, it is about the hope that Solomon points us to. It is the hope that God will fix, that God will make right everything that sin has ruined. That's the idea. The theme, really, of these verses is that hope waits for God to set right, then, what sin has ruined. Hope waits for God to set right what sin has ruined. And so we'll look at this just to give you a precursor here of three Three general points. We'll spend most of the time on the first one and take the last two rather quickly. But the first is this, that hope knows God will set right what sin has ruined. Secondly, that hope enjoys God's mercies in this life. And thirdly, that hope looks to God's promises in Christ. Now, you might be wondering, because I'll grant right up front, that hope is not directly in the passage. Solomon is not himself mentioning hope, nor is he necessarily pointing us beyond the grave. As a matter of fact, he's going to kind of drag our necks again, as he did in chapter 2, and to make us look at death squarely and head on. But we can't read this, as we, we can't read any part of Scripture without realizing that and Norah Solomon, or in Ecclesiastes, was about realizing that by looking at the reality of sin as it is, by facing the reality of this fallen world as it is, it necessarily points us to long for something else that God has promised. And so the thrust of this passage is not about hope, but rather the ruin that sin brings in relation to justice and death. But again, it fits by inspiration of the Spirit into the larger context of Scripture. And he does give us a glimmer of this here to look beyond the futility and the ruin to the future, to what God has promised to those who will put their trust in him. And so that's the angle that we'll look at it this morning. Let's read our text and then we'll look at these uh, three points. Begin with me in verse 16. Furthermore, I have seen... Under the sun, that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man, for a time for every matter and every deed is there. I said to myself, concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they, have all, they all have the same breath and there is no advantage for man over beast for all is vanity. All go to the same place, all came from the dust and all return to the dust. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth? I've seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities for that is his lot. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? And from that, we will see the hope that Solomon points us to. Go back up to verse 16, and let's look at this first point then. Hope knows that God will set right what sin has ruined. And under that, then, there is first that hope looks to God's future justice. And hope looks to God's future justice because we realize that justice is not always what is experienced here, but rather injustice, rather injustice, injustice is a part of our present human experience, verse 16, furthermore, I have seen, again, we come to this common refrain in Ecclesiastes, that he is observing the world, what I have seen by observation, and what has he seen? He sees that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. Where you would expect justice, where you would expect righteousness. Instead, what we often find is wickedness. So perfect justice doesn't exist this side of heaven. We certainly should strive for justice. We'll mention that in a bit. We should seek for perfect justice. We should seek for perfect truth, always to be exalted. But it's never going to be found in this world, ultimately. Because, again, of the corruption of sin. Sin is always going to corrupt and limit man in his ability or even his desire for true justice. But Solomon knew this is what should mark God's people. As a matter of fact, we won't read it, but he read, wrote an entire psalm in Psalm 72 speaking of the king of God, the righteous king of God is one who is marked by truth and justice. May he judge your people, verse 2, with righteousness and your afflicted with justice. That is the mark of a true king. Solomon, as we know, fell short of that goal. Every other king over Israel fell short of that goal. Even David himself, Solomon's father, fell short of that goal. So ultimately, though this is looking at the kings in Psalm 72 of Israel, the king, what is required of the king, and in a sense extolling what Uh, the theme of his own kingship should be, we realize that it's never going to be realized perfectly uh, in this earth. It does not guarantee, even with a righteous king, a righteous human king, that injustice will not happen. And this is a greater tragedy against the backdrop of what Israel should be. What Israel should be is God's people and and particularly as Solomon writes this, I mean, some have said, because, because he, he notes this, and he'll note it later, we'll look at this theme again as we go through Ecclesiastes that this can't be Solomon who's writing. this can't have Solomon as the true author. It's just somebody writing in Solomon's name, and this is one of the things they point to, because they say, well, Solomon had a righteous reign. Solomon was a good king. Solomon never would have allowed these things to come to, uh, to be a part of his kingdom. And so it must have been much later. It must have been written by an author much later. But the reality is Solomon has an incredible realism to every part of his life and every part of life under the sun, which is namely to say even the best of kings can't bring about the ideal of God's people. He couldn't do it in his own life, in his own heart. He couldn't do it in the life of the nation. As much as he may have wanted righteousness and pursued it, yet sin still was present and there was injustice in the kingdom. And again, this is particularly striking as the nation of Israel because at the very foundation of their identity was to be the people of God and to reflect His character. And what is foundational to God's own rule is righteousness and justice. Listen to just a few of these passages. You're familiar with them. Psalm 89, 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. Psalm 97 2, clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of the throne. Psalm 33 5, he says, He loves righteousness and justice, and the earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. He wants righteousness and justice from his people back then and now. Proverbs 21 said every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts to do righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord more than sacrifice. In Genesis 18, he says that Isaac was chosen that he might command his family and teach his family to walk in righteousness and justice. And you know it, and you've sung this song, Micah 6.8, summarizes it in this way. What does he want from his people? Don't sing it. I'll read it. You might be singing it in your heart. But he says this. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness? Or if you're in the old King James, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That is the essence of Old Testament piety and of New Testament piety, for that matter, of spirituality, of righteousness, of what it means to walk with God. It is to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. That is the ideal. That is what we should want. That is what should mark God's people. But unfortunately, because of sin, that is not what marks people. Instead, what should be an example before all of the nations of righteousness and justice, he says, he looks, and instead, he sees there is wickedness. There's wickedness. Things are not what they should be. Now, the, the picture here, what he says, every, for every uh, time, for every matter, and every deed is there. The scene here is most likely, um, assuredly, the courts. And he says, in the courts, these places where righteous decisions should be made, instead, I see that that's not always the case where truth should be promoted where the weak should be protected which is throughout the old testament law instead they are not they are maligned and there is lies and there is abuse where there should be where there should be protection verse 8 of chapter 5 he says this if you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province do not be shocked at the sight for the official watches over for one official watches over another official and there are higher officials over them After all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. This point here, we'll get there down the road, is simply this, that look, don't be shocked. Don't be shocked when you see that there is abuse in the world. Don't be shocked. And so while here, particularly in chapter 3, the focus is on the court system, the legal system, where justice should be uh, most clearly on display, display, there's all kinds of injustices in the world. Matter of fact, he'll mention several kinds just in Ecclesiastes, and I'll just briefly in verse 8, or chapter 8 of verse 12, he says this, Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know it will be well for those who fear God and fear him openly. And there he notes the injustice that it seems in that whole passage there that their wicked seem to prosper. That's Psalm 73. where They wear pride and arrogance like a necklace around them and they seem to be fat all the time. And nothing seems to bother them and they go through life with no problems while the righteous suffer. That's an injustice in the world. Why, why do so many problems come to those who seek to honor God and so many troubles or so many lack of troubles and a sense of ease to those who seem to scorn him? In chapter 9, there's an injustice, he says, of a wise person who delivers a city and yet when the city is delivered, he's forgotten. There's an injustice in the sense that poverty robs the wise person of honor while wealth often exalts a fool. That's an injustice in the world. It happens. In our time, we hear what kind of cry? Social justice, right? That's the mantra of our age. Social justice, racial justice, economic justice, those kind of things. And that has an appeal to it up front. We're not going to go into social justice, by the way, this morning. I'm mentioning this here for the point. Maybe down the road we can do something fuller on that. What is meant by social justice? We do at least need to acknowledge it. Well, just a couple of definitions. I just gathered around to see generally how it was defined. It's defined this way. Justice in terms of the distribution of wealth, opportunities, and privileges within a society. One defined it this way. Fair treatment of all people in a society, including respect for the rights of minorities and equitable distribution of resources among members of a community, i.e., distribution of wealth. Everybody should be equal. Everybody should have the same. Nobody should be above another. I will only make this comment about social justice because this would be a verse that would be used by those who would argue for that position and say we need to end what is unfair and make all things fair. I would only note this, and I'll borrow really from Wayne Grudem and his book on ethics, who essentially, rightly I would always say, says this, the problem with social justice, for those of us who might be confused by that term, is that it's too vague. It can be made to mean anything by any group who wants to lay a hold of it. And too often, how social justice is defined includes principles that are directly against scripture. Instead of scriptural principles of Hard work, having reward, personal responsibility, sacrifice, and the need to make good decisions. It often wants to reward laziness, bad decisions, a failure to work, and a failure of personal responsibility. It, it defeats the idea of justice rather than promoting it and exalting it. And so we want to be careful in buying onto those terms right off the bat because they sound good when in fact, Very often, if you add an adjective to the idea of justice, you're necessarily going to be unjust towards someone else. You're going to be unjust towards someone else. We can see that in riots across our nation that supposedly want what is fair and equitable and justice, why they destroy property, take lives, and destroy the freedoms of others, as if that somehow is going to promote a cause. It won't. It won't. In fact, those who claim, many in our society, many of them under the name of social justice, are in fact doing the very thing that he's warning against here. They're putting wickedness in the place of justice, and they're putting wickedness in the place of righteousness. That happens. It can be covered over. It can be be misrepresented. It's a part of our world. It's a part of the confusion that sin brings into this world. Justice to be justice, and this is all we'll say on this, is based on equity, but not equity by taking from one and giving another, but actually equity that treats one equally on their own, on their individual merits, according to a transcendent standard that applies to everyone. That's justice, biblically. That's righteousness, biblically. As a matter of fact, again, we're not going to spend time, but let me just read to you. Leviticus 19, for example, Leviticus 19, 15 states this as clearly as anywhere, says this, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor. In other words, you don't give poor more advantage over the rich and you don't give the rich more advantage over the poor. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. That's the kind of justice that should mark a righteous people. So again, and we'll end with this. So while Christian justice is certainly to pursue justice and equality under the law, fair treatment in society, these things must be consistent with biblical principles and righteousness. And here he says then, even there in this land then, where people are crying out for justice and where there should be, there isn't. There's sin, there's wickedness. We, we suffer the consequences of the corruption of man. And so he says in verse 17 then... To give hope, he says, I said to myself, what was his response? That God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time for every matter and for every deed is there. In other words, and here is the hope that he gives. This is the one glimmer of hope in terms of looking beyond this world that he gives. Namely, that the injustice that is experienced in this world is not the final word, it's not the last word, it's not the last thing to be said on the subject. God is going to have the last word there, not man. God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man. That is to say, there is a time for every deed to receive its just recompense, to be held to the perfect light of justice and to receive what it deserves. Now, I want to make just a footnote here. This is an important, this is an important point to grasp for many reasons, which we'll hopefully get to, but one of the greatest, it said, one of the greatest arguments against Christianity, against the truth of Scripture, against the truth of the gospel is this, and we've mentioned this before in other contexts, but is the reality of sin in the world. How could God be good and how can he be sovereign at the same time if there's so much sin and injustice in the world? How can you connect those two things? That is the theological quandary that some of you know of theodicy. How do those things come together? How could there be sin if God is good in the world? Well, one answer to that, one part of that answer, we'll get to another part later, is this, is because what we can see presently in the world in terms of injustice is not the final word. It's one part of the answer. This is not everything. God's purposes are not accomplished, they're not spent, By what we see now, his purposes reach forward to a greater reality in the future. So, yes, we do see injustice now, but justice will be upheld in the universe. God is a God of justice. He is the creator of the ends of the earth, and he will hold all accountable. One answer is because we realize that there is a future day of accountability. And so here he says, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked. Now, it's important to note here up front that the idea of judgment here, we we think of judgment always in the context of condemnation, of condemnation. Judgment is broader than that. It's used in a variety of ways. I won't list all of them. But but one essential idea of uh, the idea of judgment is simply this, to make a discerning decision between right and wrong and then bring about the attendant consequences. That's an essential idea of judgment. It makes a decision that discerns between what is right and wrong, what is true and false, and then brings about whatever circumstances or consequences should attend that decision. Okay? And then he uses it really in both ways here, in the idea of condemnation and in the idea of discernment. Both of those things are related to this. Now here Solomon anticipates then that, yes, right now presently there is injustice But there is a judgment that's coming, and it's a judgment from God. What judgment is he talking about? What judgment is he talking about? Well, there are a variety of judgments in Scripture. There's judgments of an individual. We see a judgment of nations. We see judgments that are... Uh, temporal judgments, the judgment of Jerusalem, for example. We see judgments that are future judgments. There's a judgment on the world and the tribulation. There's a great judgment at the end of the final age, at the millennial kingdom, in which there is uh, the great white throne judgment. There's a judgment for believers. There's a judgment for angels. There's a judgment for all of God's creation. And it comes in many phases and in many ways. Solomon's not... Not here, of course, looking at any specific judgment, except for we can say this. He's looking for a a judgment of God that will be in the future and a judgment of God in the future that will set right the wrongs that are now experienced. That's the idea. That will happen. That will happen. And he says here then that God will judge the righteous man and the wicked man. Well, how is he going to judge the righteous man and the wicked man? Are the righteous man and the wicked man going to be both condemned by God? No, of course not. That's why we mentioned the idea of judgment. What he is to say is that God will make a discerning decision and affirm the righteous man and condemn the wicked man. And in that way, God's justice will be upheld. God's final decision will mark out the righteous man as righteous and the wicked man as wicked and again bring their attended results. He anticipates this at the end of the book. Of course, we'll get there. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or whether it is evil. God will discern it. He will separate it out and give the necessary consequences. To the righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward and a wicked person will receive a wicked person's reward. That's how it works. That's how it works. And this is throughout, this is throughout Scripture. Let me give you just one example. I'm not going to go everywhere I would have wanted to, but let me give you just one example of how this works out. In real time, this isn't, so much, this isn't a future judgment, but how this mirrors the heart of the righteous person who actually desires God's judgment, who wants God to be a judge on their behalf. First Samuel 24. First uh, Samuel 24, David is on run on the run from Saul, who is seeking his life unjustly. And when David finds himself in a pickle and he needs God to protect him, he says this, or when he finds or when he found himself Uh, of God protecting him when he was in the pickle and when he was being threatened by Saul, he says this, he says, the Lord therefore be judge and decide between you and me and may he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. In other words, that's a, may he judge that I am the one in the right, that I am the righteous man and judge that you are the wicked man in pursuit of me. But ultimately, we want God to do that and to be our ultimate vindication at the end of the age, to be at that time where finally we are revealed to be on the right side and those who persecuted us are found to be on the wrong side. But even more than that, specific to us, God will judge the righteous man not only by vindication, in other words, declaring their to be right in their trust in God and in their following of God, but also will hold that righteous person to a standard of review. Again, we're not going to go down here Uh, But the Christian knows this reality, the final accountability of our our own lives. He says in the context of the resurrection, 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all, you know it, stand before the judgment seat of Christ and each person receive essentially the fruit of his rewards, whatever they did in the body, whether good or bad. Uh, There's many other passages there. But it is to say that God will vindicate, God will scrutinize the righteous man to show their righteousness and to give them the just rewards for their works, but he also will judge the wicked man. And that really fits more uh, into the hope here of Solomon in light of the wickedness that's in the world. God will judge the wicked man. That is to say, though now the wicked seem to prosper, all the wicked will be held accountable for their deeds. All the wicked will be held accountable for their deeds. You remember this. Let me give you just out of Psalm 1. Just listen. You're familiar with this. This begins, sets the theme and the tone for the Psalms. He says this. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. It will not endure. It may seem to flourish for a time, but in the end, standing before God, it will be the one that perishes. And we have, to, we have to hope in this because we experience injustices in this world. Let me ask some of you, even in here, have you ever experienced injustice from the law? It could have been in a variety of ways. It could have been a, a court case. It could have been some legal proceeding of even in some cases a divorce or whatever. Have you ever at work been the... Recipient of what was unjust, being unjustly accused, unjustly fired, unjustly passed over, unfairly passed over that in, in a way that left you with little recourse. How about a personal matter where you feel you're unjustly condemned, unfairly treated, unjustly maligned for things that you're not truly guilty of? That's what he, he captures all of that here. There's injustice, but God will set things right. It won't be perfect here. But it will be perfect in its own due time, and we have to take great comfort in that. But here's something striking too, uh, and I want to notice this: Why will God's judgment be perfect? Why will God's judgment be perfect? Well, because He's God. That's true. But let us consider this as we think about this future judgment of God. And this, if you are an unbeliever, if you've not yet committed yourself to Christ, listen to these words. If you are a believer in sin, listen to these words. If you are a believer who somehow thinks you're hiding something from God, listen to these words. Why will God's judgment be perfect? Well, let me mention to you at least two reasons why God's judgment is perfect in standing in contrast to man. One is because God knows everything. He knows. Man doesn't know everything. We do our best to gather evidence. We do our best to get all the facts that we can, even in the court of law. We do our best to try to uh, to, to, uh, base it on what all the truth is in a particular case. But we're ignorant. We don't know. We're not there. We're not all seen. We don't know motives. We don't know intent. Even intent is something that plays a role in the law in the case of murder and other things. But well, we don't know, but God does know. He is omniscient. He sees every deed. He sees every motive. Nothing can be hidden and nothing will be missed. In Psalm 1826, with the pure, you show yourself pure, and with the cro- uh, crooked, you show yourself astute. In other words, as you are pure and you live in obedience to God then you will find God affirming that inside of you. You will find God affirming that in your life. You will find that through a clear conscience, through God's blessing, through fellowship with him, and so forth. If you are crooked, in other words, if there is sin, no matter how much you might hide that from God, you will find out that God knows. That God knows, and nothing was hidden from him. And with the crooked, you will show yourself astute. Numbers 20, 32, 23. You have sinned against the Lord, and you be sure your sin will find you out. So this is a good to remember. If you are hiding sin, even as we come to the Lord's table this morning... It's a time to be right. If you're hiding sin, if you're justifying sin, if you are in any way thinking that little sin God doesn't know about or he'll just kind of wink at it, uh, that's just not the case. That's just not the case. God, with perfect knowledge, knows what's in the heart. And this is a time to come right before him, even as we come to his table. Secondly, God's judgment will be perfect because of his holiness. In other words, God is perfectly holy, in him is light, there is no darkness at all. There is no wrong motive in God to in any way prejudice his judgment in a wrong way. There's all kinds of wrong motives that can be a temptation to men to cause them to sway one thing, to shade it in a certain way, to tell a lie, to bear false witness. None of that is in God. He sees things absolutely as they are, and he has no wrong motive within him to pervert justice in any way. He is absolutely holy. It will be that everything is brought before his perfect and blazing light of his holiness. And that is the foundation of his justice. And he will judge with absolute purity. Absolute purity. So there is this final judgment where we know these things will be that we find our hope and we find some comfort in the midst of what is wicked in this world. Let me note this, that no sin will ever go unpunished. No sin will ever go unpunished. Every sin ever committed by every single human being, that means every single infraction and lack of conformity to God's holy law, to God's holy nature, will receive its just recompense. Everything, not one sin. Do you realize that since the fall of man in Genesis 3 to the last man who will ever live and the last sin that will ever be committed, not one single one of them, not one, not the slightest one, not the slightest thought, not the slightest intention, not the slightest motive that failed to conform to God's holiness will not be held to the perfect standard of justice. Not one, not one. Everything will be held up to the light of God's holiness and receive what it deserves everything everything but that's the glory of it isn't it of the gospel that's the glory of the gospel think about if there were no gospel and it says that Christ will return and he will judge according to every man's deeds in Matthew 16:7 or 16:27 Think about God returning on his throne, and if he were to hold you accountable on your own with no mediator, with nothing in between, and he were simply to hold you accountable for your sin, who could stand? Right? Who could stand? And so this is the great hope as well, and that's why I say this presents the backdrop, because the Old Testament saint anticipated that they would not ultimately have to stand for their own sin, that God would provide an atonement. It was an atonement pictured of course, in the sacrifices and the blood of bulls and goats and all of those things that were a part of their cultic worship, their temple worship, the things that God prescribed in the Mosaic law. But ultimately, they, they knew those things. The, the righteous Jew knew those things didn't satisfy God's standard of justice. The blood and bulls and goats you have not desired, but a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise And so this came after Solomon, of course, in terms of this kind of clarity. But that's what he was pointing them to. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. By his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned aside to his own way and the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So how is every sin upheld and God's justice satisfied and you and I aren't condemned and sent to hell forever because God's justice was upheld by another on our behalf that's the glory of the gospel he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness so the cross is where perfect justice and perfect love met as a matter of fact these are familiar words but let me read them to you you know, to be honest, we're reading through Romans in our devotions as a family, occasionally. We're not always as consistent as we should be, but we are reading through Romans. And I'll be honest with you, I have a little trepidation sometimes in my heart. We're right at this passage in reading it because I feel such weight of it in that it won't, the justice of it won't be fully felt. Of course, that's not about me. That's about the Spirit of God, of course. But I'm just saying that's what I feel in my heart sometimes, the weightiness of this. Listen to Paul's words. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets... Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. How has that happened? Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, as a satisfaction, as a full, complete accomplishment of the righteous requirement of the law in His blood through faith, His death. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because, in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that, and here it is, he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man, not as though there is some kind of balance of deeds, whereas somebody who does more good deeds is not judged. This isn't Islam. And those who do the more bad deeds are going to be judged and condemned. No, it is because every lawless deed, every sin, every sin committed by you and me, if we are a believer in Jesus Christ and for all who will put their faith in Christ and trust in Him, was laid on Christ. He bore it completely in His body on the cross. That's what we celebrate in the supper this morning. When it says in Revelation 20 at the end of the final ages when everything else is done just before the new heavens and the new earth, it says they will stand before him and the books will be open, and their deeds are recorded in them. There's also the book of life. For those who have been redeemed, but for those who are outside of redemption, the books are opened. It is a picture here of a record in God's accounting of every evil deed. And that is what the unbeliever will bear for eternity is the consequences of that in separation from God. And in an accusing conscience for all of eternity and everything that God has prepared for those who reject him. But for the believer, but for the believer who will be a witness to these things, Scripture clearly seems to indicate, will realize that all of those deeds that they're bearing forever, I committed the same sins. I'm guilty of them as well. There's not a sin an unbeliever commits that you're not guilty of, not one. There's not a sin an unbeliever commits that you're not capable of committing, even if you haven't. That doesn't reside in your heart in its seed form. And yet, the believer says, I, being no better than they, know that one stood in my place and bore that condemnation for me, and bore that condemnation for me. And that is Christ, and that is grace. And so we know we're spared this judgment of the wicked and can be called the righteous only because the righteous one stood in our place. And so there is the gospel that is lurking behind here. But the main point here, and this we're going to move on from, is that, God, that Solomon points us and says, Look, justice is not going to be perfect here. But God, that does not mean justice will not be met. It just means that for those who suffer injustice, you have to wait a little bit longer. It's going to come. You just have to hold on. And as we hold on, we remember that we do so and are held by the one who bore the justice we deserve in our place to set us free, to give us life, and to give us a share in this promise that we will be vindicated, we who have put our trust in him. Let's look at the second part of what he says here then. So he says, I know that there's no justice Here, we're looking forward to a future justice. Secondly, he says, hope cannot be found. He reminds us, in sinful man, we look for this future justice because man is not going to be able to bring about this perfect justice of God. Let's just look at this. I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath and there is no advantage for man over beast for all is vanity. And once again, Solomon turns our attention to the condition of man by bringing us face to face with the reality of death. Remember he did that before in chapter 2. He reminded us that there is no legacy. There is nothing for us to find meaning in in terms of this world because we're going to die and it's all going to be lost and we're going to be forgotten. Here he he reminds us of that again, that death is our ultimate end in terms of this world, in terms of this world. And this is a sobering assessment. Man made in the image of God, man made to rule over creation, man made to... To have rule and dominion over all that God has made in his place is yet here compared to be no better than a dog or a cat or a cow of the field in that sense. As a cow dies, you're going to die. As your dog died, you're going to die. That's his point. But he actually makes a point deeper than that as well. He says here that God tests Did them in order for them to see that they are but beast? How does he test them? Some take this as, you know, in the normal sense that when we read that word of testing in the sense of trials and, you know, the the difficulties of life that... Prove and strengthen faith and those type of things. And that might be inherent there in some way. But the, the main idea here for Solomon, this is in the God testing them in order for them to see what they are, is merely to say that God leaves man to demonstrate the reality of their hearts. And what do you find? Wickedness. In the, in the providences and the times of life, which is the context here that God brings us into, God makes us to see as we're able to respond to them that we are no better than the beast, no better than an animal. Why? Well, there's two things that come out here. One, because of our corruption, our sin, and I had to stay with the C word, our constitution. In other words, we die. We die. Our corruption and our constitution. So what does the testing reveal? The testing reveals that we are corrupt. And in that sense, there is the idea here that we are no better than beast and that we act like beasts. We act like beasts. That's no surprise. When God describes in Daniel the coming kingdoms of the world, these wicked kingdoms, how does he describe them? As beasts, as animals, as a goat, as a unique kind of beast, as a ram, and so forth. In the anticipation of the kingdom of Christ, who is it? It's a beast that rises out of the ocean, out of the seas, and out of the peoples of the earth. It is a beast that rises up. That's the character of his kingdom. Israel, the covenant people of God, were said to be more stupid than even an animal, Isaiah 1.3, an ox knows its owner and a donkey, its master, its master's manger. But Israel does not know and my people do not understand. You're dumber than an ox, Israel. Even an ox, an animal doesn't behave like you do. When Nebuchadnezzar in his pride was humbled by God and his arrogance, what did God make him do? Made him walk around in the field like a beast, didn't he? Let his hair grow long, his nails grow long. He looked hideous. He looked foolish, this glorious king. They look like an animal. They look like somebody you just stick out in the field and you forget and you feel pity for them. And so there is that idea. You test them. We're no better than the beast, he says, because of the corruption in our heart. And that's not only an Old Testament thing. Peter said in 2 Peter 2, speaking of false teachers, they're like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and to be killed. You're like a. They're like a rabbit or some stray animal or some vicious animal out in the forest that's only to be captured and killed, they are. They're like beasts, reviling where they have no knowledge. They will, in the destruction of those creatures, also be destroyed. Jude 10, again, a false teachers. They revile the things which they do not understand, the things which they, they do not know. Like They like instinct, like unreasoning animals. They proceed and they are to be destroyed. So there's a sense here where we're like the beast because we're no better with the corruption of sin. We're just like a beast. And God often describes us that way in terms of our fallenness, that you're just unreasoning, you're foolish, you're stupid, you're wicked. You're of no more value in that sense than to be gathered up and to be destroyed. But then he points us to something else here, and this is where he spends most of his time. The proof of that. Isn't only in our actions, but it's also in the fact that like beast we die. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beast is the same, as one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, death reminds us once again that we are but creatures who bear the marks of the curse. And he wants us to feel that and to recognize it. He says, indeed, they all have the same breath, there is no advantage for man over beast, all is vanity. And there's a sense again that's that's throughout Scripture. We've read Psalm 104, and it reminds us that God gives breath to the beast, even as He gives breath to the animals. And as He gives breath, He takes it away. Job said the same thing in Psalm 34:15. If God should take away His spirit, what would happen? We'd all be destroyed. We'd all just go into nothing. Job 34:15. That's the beginning of Scripture. Genesis 2.7, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Man became a living being. But outside of that glorious statement, whatever uniqueness this life gave to man as this particular act of God, the fact is that because of sin and because of the curse, again, the backdrop of his language here, we're going to return to dust. Verse 20. All go to the same place. All came from the dust and all return from the dust. He created animals out of the dust. He created you out of the dust and now that you've sinned, you've ruined it and you're going to return to the dust as they return to the dust. Genesis 3.19. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. You go up and you dig up a grave and what are you going to find? Nothing but dust and waste. So in this... So he says in verse 20, they all go to the same place and they all came from the dust and returned to the dust. Who knows that the breath of man, verse 21, ascends upward, the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth. Now, Solomon 1 here is not saying that there's not a distinction between man. That's not his point in this section. He's going to make clear that there is a distinction of man. Man is a moral creature. He said in verse 11, man has eternity set in his heart. In Genesis 2-7, even though we end in the same place as the beast, there is a uniqueness to God breathing into man the breath of life that gave him rule over the garden, who gave him a moral command that he was to obey with consequences, who gave him a promise of fellowship with him and of joy. There is a distinction in an ultimate sense. He's not denying that. He knew that there was an afterlife. His own father said when Solomon's brother, who David also had with Bathsheba, was killed, he said, right, he will not come to me, but I will go to him. He knew that there was something else. He knew Enoch had walked with God and then was not because he was taken up. He knew that was the case. They knew that there was something else. Job, likely referring to a time before Solomon, well, well before, says, Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. Hebrews 11 says, Beginning all the way with Abel, all the way through the Old Testament, marks out those who had faith in God, faith in God beyond what they could see. He knew that there was something more. He's not making an absolute statement here about the afterlife. As a matter of fact... Even in Ecclesiastes itself, he says in verse 12, verse 7, then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it. So we don't misread this. He is looking at this merely from the point of observation and he says, yeah, we see that. I, I mean, we, we know that. That is what, what it means to be made in the image of God is that there's something more. But when you simply observe it, how do you know it? If you looked at it just by what you could see, you bury your dead dog in the backyard, you bury someone else in a casket and you put them in the ground. It's the same. You don't see the earth shake and something fly up out of the grave any more with your animal than you do with your loved one. You don't see it. How do you know that is what happens? And his point here, again, is not to emphasize... Some statement about the afterlife, but merely is to say that is our condition. That is how low we have been brought. That at the end of our life, we're in the same place, even as a beast. And so there's no hope in man. Man is going to die. They're no better than beast in terms of their corruption, in terms of their end. There's no hope in those things. So what is his counsel? Well, I'm going to make these last two moments points briefly. Verse 22, here is his counsel. Number one, I have seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities for that is his lot. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? And this is the second point. Hope enjoys God's mercies in life. And this is where he continually brings us back to and brings us back to. Hope enjoys God's mercies in life. Since these things are to be, since we can't ultimately find perfect justice here, since we know we're gonna die just like animals, recognize God's mercies for what they are. I've seen there's nothing better than that man should be happy in all of his activities. There's nothing better than that. He says in verse 24 of chapter 2, there's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I've seen that it is from the hand of God. He doesn't leave us in despair is the point. He doesn't leave us despairing just of, in a nihilistic sort of hopeless way. Nor does he give the full account of man's total purpose for living in spiritual fellowship with God, which was a part of the covenant he was under as well. It merely is to affirm this, that God has appointed a time for all things that includes our death. And so therefore enjoy what he gives now during this brief period of your life. There's an echo of Jesus' statement here in the sermon. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. Just live for today. For who knows, he says, what... Who, for who will bring him to see what will occur after him? Which is simply to say this. Death brings an end to our concerns in this world. All that was once held dear and important will come to an end. We'll end up in the dust. Our bodies will be food for worms. And we don't even know what will come after. So why worry about it? That's the point. But this is the third point, And this is where we'll come into the table. But the backdrop, as I mentioned at the beginning, of Solomon, the backdrop of the reality of the hopelessness that sin has brought into this world is what causes us, and the third point, is to look to the promises of God. To look to the promises of God. Now again, they knew that there was hope. David had hope. Abel had hope. Moses had hope. All of the saints of the Old Testament had hope. They had faith. Again, that's Hebrews 11. They knew that there was something more... That's why they could make the sacrifices. That's why they could be sawn in two. That's why Moses could neglect all of the riches and the pleasures of Egypt in order to suffer with his people in the wilderness. That's why those things could happen. Because they knew that there was something better that was awaiting them. They weren't without hope. They knew that. But that hope, again, was a shadowy hope. It wasn't wasn't near what we have. Listen to Paul's words. That he has saved us, speaking of God who has brought us to understand the power of the gospel he has saved us and called us with a holy calling not according to our works but according to his own purpose and grace which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity now here but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel and so in this glorious way even more than where Solomon could have understood in the Old Testament saint, we say, yes, death is our lot, we'll go in the ground like everybody else will go in the ground. But we know one who has overcome the grave. We've seen the resurrection of the dead in Jesus Christ. We've seen him who died and bore our sin as a ransom for many. We've seen him come, we've seen him die, and we've seen him rise. We've had him tell us that there is so much more He proved it, John 20, 27. Reach here your finger, see my hands. Reach here your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving but believing. And Thomas answered and said, what? My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. I will worship you. I will follow you. You have risen from the dead just as you said. You have done and accomplished what only you could have done and defeated the grave. And so Jesus said then to us, I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, I'm taking parts of two verses. If you believe in me, you will never die you will never die. What a glorious hope against the backdrop of you're like a beast and you go into the ground and you know better. And that is true and then all of this anticipation of the Old Testament and now Christ has come and accomplished us. And so when we read that we go, yes, and that gives us a perspective on this world and it makes us see the foolishness of living for this world but then it points us to that glorious reality of Christ and says, he has abolished death. He brought life. He brought immortality to light through the gospel. That is what we should Give our lives for. Why? Because as he'll say later, and this is where we'll come into the table, that because of the resurrection, because of our life in Christ, because of his return, because of the gospel, because of the power of the Spirit in us who unites us to Christ and empowers us to live for him in this world, because of those things, everything that we do for the Lord, guess what? It remains. It remains. It's not in vain. Everything that we do for him is not in vain. We're not left in the misery and the endlessness of the grave. We look past the grave and we see that everything that we do in the Lord, when we're steadfast and movable and abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our toil is not in vain. Why? Because it will receive an eternal reward. It will be remembered forever before Jesus Christ. It will be a gift that we lay down to his feet. It will bring him glory and he will be glorified in it and we will rejoice in that glory and he in an overflow of grace gives us this reward in heaven. And that's what we were right. He said he brings his reward with him in, in his return. And so we live in hope. The backdrop is nothingness. We're like beasts. There's injustice. But the hope is that God will Fulfill justice. God has defeated the grave. God does make everything that we do here have purpose and meaning that is eternal when it's done for him and out of faith. And this is that we come to the table. This is where we examine ourselves. What am I living for? What am I living for? What are the things that rule my life? How am I dealing with sin? How am I pursuing righteousness? How am I serving his purposes in this world? How is my heart being transformed and being renewed day by day? And we'll have plenty of sin to confess me along with you in the answer to those questions. But that's the great glory of it, isn't it? That we confess it and we know that our Savior has paid that penalty for us. and He's the one who enables us to confess that and then frees us to walk in righteousness and empowers us to live for him in this world. And so as you come to the table this as we take these elements, and so before we do, does everybody have, uh, if they weren't handed out, we have our beloved brother George, who has some in the box. So for those, if you haven't taken communion with us before, uh, we have the prepackaged ones. Go ahead and just let him know. And we're doing these for now. And take them. And as he's handing those out, and, and before we pray and remember this together... I'll remind you that this is a celebration of grace. We come not in an unworthy manner, as Paul reminds us. We come examining ourselves. We come making sure that we don't have some hidden lust and some hidden sin that we're holding on to, some hidden pride in our hearts, something that we're feeding and thinking we'll just keep it brushed aside. We'll go through the religious motion and everything will be okay afterwards. No. God sees, right? God is holy. He is unmixed in his Discernment of our hearts. No, we come to Him with a completely open heart and we say, God, here's where I've sinned. Here's where I need forgiveness. And I come knowing that that forgiveness is in Jesus Christ. And by the power of that grace and forgiveness in Christ, I can be made and strengthened to live for you in this world. Help me to do that. And so we come with those humble hearts. There's nothing magic in these elements, there's certainly nothing magic in a plastic cup. It is what God has given to us to be symbolized in those elements, which is his body given for us, his blood spilled for us, and the promise of the new covenant, every one of which is yes and amen in him for us, and the hope of his return. So, as I could even ask uh, maybe George to bring me one, because I don't have mine. I forgot again. There he goes. Thank you, brother. I forgot, it's not a very good example. Um, So let me give you just a moment to pray and then I'll pray for us and then we'll take these elements together. So just spend some time talking to the Lord. If you don't know the Lord, this is a time to say, you're willing to lay down your life, to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him, that you'll lose your life in exchange for his. And if that's your heart, he more than gladly offers it to you in grace. So take a moment to pray. Our God, we come in celebration of this table. And it is a celebration because while it involves the remembrance of a bloody cross, while it involves the remembrance of you being scourged for our transgressions, you being nailed to a bloody cross, you crying out, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? It also reminds us that you uttered the words, It is finished. And you gave up your spirit. You went into the grave. And then you rose from that grave and you defeated death on our behalf. You made a final atonement for sin so that we can come to you and have a clear conscience. We don't need the sacrifices day by day. Once for all, you offered up your body on our behalf and the fruit of your work is the body here, the people redeemed, the people who have been given your spirit, us who have been forgiven of our sin. We are the fruit of that work to the praise of the glory of your grace. We are the fruit of that work to be conformed to your image and to prove that your will is good and acceptable and perfect. We are the fruit of that work so even as we gather and go out into the world by the remembrance that we celebrate here we proclaim your death until you come. And in doing that then we proclaim your resurrection and your return And Lord, that's what we want to do. Help us to live for you. Help us as we struggle with our own flesh to be reminded of grace, not to excuse sin, but to make us abhor it all the more and to press on to what is good and right. Help us to be a people, O Lord, who are humble, who love righteousness, and who are growing in the things of holiness. Lord, we could wish that was always a smooth line. We know that it's not in the reality of our experience, but we know you have saved us. We know that you keep us and that we know in the big picture of our life that you are moving us upwards and onwards towards that goal. And so make us have that heart like Paul who said, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So let's